Hi, and welcome to another edition of the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Kansas City Star, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, Audiophile Magazine. We're going to start off today's African American Hour with an article from the Wall Street Journal. The title is Black Farmers Skeptical About Aid. It was published Monday, September 26, 2022, and was written by Christina Peterson. Last month, President Biden signed into law a spending bill intended to reckon with what courts and government investigations have repeatedly found to be a history of discrimination by the U.S. Agriculture Department against black farmers. But for many black farmers and their advocates, they will have to see the money to believe it. While they welcome the new federal aid included in the health, climate, and tax package that Congress passed with only Democratic votes, decades of failed efforts to address the issue have left them skeptical. I just feel that nothing's going to happen, said Carolyn Jones, who, with her husband Chris, raises livestock in Monroe and Chickasaw counties in Mississippi. We've gotten excited before. The congressional funding provides the USDA with $3.1 billion for loan modifications to farmers in financial distress and $2.2 billion for farmers who have experienced discrimination through the department's farm lending programs. The latest package follows a court-ordered halt to a more narrowly targeted $4 billion fund for minority farmers that have been in the March 2021 COVID relief bill. White farmers, including Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller filing as a private citizen, had sued over the funding, saying it was unconstitutional to exclude them on the basis of race. The new funding is structured differently. A farmer of any race who is in financial distress and has a direct or guaranteed loan with the USDA is eligible for relief, including loan modifications, under the $3.1 billion. The $2.2 billion pot of money is available to anyone who has experienced discrimination through lending programs before January 1, 2021, which could also include white women. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said last month that the agency was thinking carefully about how to structure the discrimination funding. He said the agency is also reviewing its loan portfolio to figure out how to make sure financially distressed farmers don't lose their land after a moratorium on foreclosures ends when the public health emergency for the COVID-19 pandemic is lifted. Some advocates believe the USDA could have delivered more debt relief to black farmers in 2021 before the lawsuit halted the program if it had moved more quickly, and they are nervous that the agency is repeating that mistake. The USDA spokesperson said the agency had tried to deliver that funding quickly. Delays in loan funding have been part of the problem. Mr. and Mrs. Jones struggled in the 1970s to access the USDA funding they needed to expand as pig farmers. The loan they landed was half of what Mr. Jones had requested, and the USDA directed them to go through their local bank. But the USDA funds arrived late, their bank loan accrued interest, and this ultimately set them up for foreclosure and bankruptcy, the family said. Later, after decades of working other jobs, Mrs. Jones secured a USDA loan for their new farm raising beef cattle, which remains in operation. 
Mrs. Jones says she wonders where we could have been had the family not been trapped by debt early on. In recent years, the agency has emphasized its efforts to help launch a new, younger, and more diverse generation of farmers. But even as outright racism has faded, Black farmers said they still are often told their business models are wrong and they have insufficient farming experience. A USDA spokesperson said the agency is committed to facing its history, learning from mistakes, and doing the intentional work of building trust in the communities that need us most. The tense relationship between black farmers and the agriculture department goes back generations. One source of tension is a system set up by Congress in 1937 of county committees of local farmers, long overwhelmingly white, with significant discretion to decide who was eligible for federal USDA loans. Repeatedly, government reports found that black farmers were denied loans or received smaller loans than white farmers under this system. The hurdles in financing have contributed to a steep drop in the number of black farmers in the United States. As of 2017, there are 48,697 black farmers, out of almost 3.4 million total farmers according to the Census of Agriculture. Some black farmers simply stopped trying to work with the USDA after years of being denied loans or receiving them delayed, forcing them to buy supplies at higher prices or plant their crops late. Freddie Bynum, a cattle farmer with plots in Chickasaw and Pontotoc counties, capital P-O-N-T-O-T-O-C, in Mississippi, said he had a $35,000 loan rescinded in 2014 when he bought a tractor on the advice of his local loan officer who said the purchase would be reimbursed through the already approved loan. When the tractor purchase went through, he was told, if you're able to get the money for the tractor, you don't need the loan. In August, Mr. Bynum filed a discrimination lawsuit reflecting years of struggles with the local USDA office. His inability to purchase enough land for his cattle to graze has meant he has to buy six rolls of hay each week, eating into his profits. I've never been able to get established like I want to, he said. There are two photographs. The first picture shows a man and a woman standing in a farmyard, both of them wearing straw hats. There is a greenhouse behind the left shoulder of the man. The man is wearing a blue shirt and blue jeans. The woman is wearing a long-sleeved gray dress. The caption reads, Farmers Carolyn and Chris Jones have doubts about a new USDA loan program to fix decades of discrimination. We've gotten excited before, she says. The next photograph shows two men standing under a tree in a pasture. There is a horse and two cows in front of them. The caption reads, Mississippi cattleman Freddie Bynum sued the agency alleging biased loan practices in its local office. That was a reading of the article, Black Farmers Skeptical About Aid. It was published in the Wall Street Journal on September 26, 2022, and was written by Christina Peterson. Next on today's African American Hour is a story that originally appeared in in the Los Angeles Times newspaper, but was posted at the news.yahoo.com.
Daily.com website. The title is, Trevor Noah's exit won't just hurt The Daily Show, it'll hurt all of late night. It was written by Lorraine Ali and was published Friday, September 30th, 2022. Late night television and nightly political satire will miss The Daily Show host Trevor Noah, who announced Thursday that he's exiting the Comedy Central series after seven years behind the desk. The South African comedian brought third world perspective, his words, to a talk show circuit populated with white American and Anglo jokesters. Noah's outsider status, initially considered a drawback in his line of work, eventually became his biggest strength. By connecting us with the rest of the world during an incredibly fraught time in American politics, the comedian reminded his audience that we weren't the first to experience such upheaval and we weren't alone. His sharp and knowing commentary about global affairs, foreign conflict, colonialism, and the realities of race and inequality both inside and outside the U.S. somehow made our own spiraling state of the Union feel a little less catastrophic. I've loved trying to find a way to make people laugh, even when the stories are particularly shit. Even on the worst days, he told the audience on Thursday's Daily Show taping, But the global exposure that forged his comedic style is also at least part of why he's decided to depart, at a date still to be determined according to the network. I spent two years in my apartment, not on the road. And when I got back out there, I realized there's another part of my life out there that I want to carry on exploring. I miss learning other languages. I miss going to other countries and putting on shows, Noah said. He thanked Comedy Central for believing in this random comedian nobody knew on this side of the world. Noah, who grew up in Johannesburg and made a name for himself in the region as a stand-up, was a relatively obscure choice to follow predecessor John Stewart, and the series initially suffered in the ratings when Noah took the reins in 2015. But the gamble paid off. The former Daily Show correspondent amassed younger viewers during a particularly rocky time, in part by underscoring how his perspective contrasted with competitors such as Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, John Oliver, Samantha Bee, James Corden, and Jimmy's Kimmel and Fallon. He'd only been in the seat a year when Trump won the presidency. He pivoted to streaming the show from home in a black hoodie during the pandemic. But he made unpredictable times feel less doomy and isolating by combining news of domestic strife with happenings beyond our borders. In a recent Royal Rumble segment, for instance, he joked about the varying reactions to Queen Elizabeth II's death. It's normal to mourn someone's passing, he said, but there's a problem in demanding that everyone feel the same way about the crown. He said her passing gave insight into how people see the world around them and noted the outrage of royal supporters who demanded everyone show the same reverence for the monarchy as they did. He pointed out that folks from places like India and Africa suffered under the British Empire, throughout which British colonizers discouraged them from speaking in their native languages and disregarded local customs. You can't expect people to show respect for something that never respected them, he said to buy into an idea that never bought into theirs. As the only black host in Late Night, Noah also had the personal experience and license to tackle racism and inequity during a particularly anxious period, one that saw demonstrations over police violence against black Americans, a Trump administration ban on Muslim entrance to the country, a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes, and attacks on synagogues and mosques. 
He took on race baiter Tommy Loren with ease and offered a powerful lens on the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed, not least because his own life had been shaped by apartheid. At the time of Noah's birth, his parents' interracial relationship, his father is Anglo-European, his mother African, was illegal in South Africa, and he did not shy from the indignities suffered by them in a segregated society. Daily Show segments such as Racism in South Africa versus America added global historical context to the rising hate in America while making the audience laugh when we wanted to cry. Meanwhile, Noah's deep interest in and frequent references to music, Kanye, pop culture, and more Kanye forged a bond with younger viewers to which his late-night peers could not come close. He translated this appeal to platforms beyond The Daily Show, too, turning in one of the best performances in modern memory as Grammy's host due to his insider jokes about songs like WAP. Anyone whose Google search results turn up the question, is he dating Dua Lipa, has automatic youth culture cred. He used this contemporary cachet to expose Daily Show viewers to comparatively stuffy news that they might otherwise find boring. In a recurring segment, If You Don't Know, Now You Do, he answered questions that weren't even being asked by most Americans and moved undercover topics from the deep freeze into TV's front burner. Why does China want to take over Uganda's only international airport? Why are India's farmers protesting? What's up with the reparation efforts around European stolen African art, or as Noah put it, antiquities that were borrowed by force? Noah's distinct point of view came in most handy after Trump shocked many observers by winning the White House, in part because his background allowed him to answer a question many late-night hosts could not. How might the country prepare for a Trump presidency? Noah knew. He suggested looking toward Africa and its former dictators for clues, and then comprised clips of speeches and interviews with Uganda's Idi Amin and Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe to those of Trump. Their style, attitude, and rhetoric about winning no matter the cost and locking up their detractors in the process was eerily similar. He also cited former South African President Jacob Zuma, who presented himself as a man of the people, an anti-establishment agent of change, a beacon of truth amid a dishonest media, and a litigious figure who was stacking the courts with his own people. Then as now, clues to our own future lay in the oft-dismissed third world to which Noah was so attuned. It took a late-night comedian from somewhere else to make us laugh about our own country's failings and to open our eyes to what comes next. That was a reading of the article, Trevor Noah's Exit Won't Just Hurt the Daily Show, It'll Hurt All of Late Night. It was originally published in the Los Angeles Times newspaper, but presented also at the news.yahoo.com website. It was written by Lorraine Ali and published September 30th, 2022. Next up on today's African American Hour is an article from the Kansas City Star. The title is, KC Police Employment Practices Probed for Racial Discrimination. It was written by Glenn E. Rice and Luke Nozika. It was published September 20th, 2022. The U.S. Department of Justice has launched an investigation of employment practices at the Kansas City Police Department to determine if the force engaged in racial discrimination. In a statement, Police Chief Joseph Maben said the department was notified Monday morning by the Civil Rights Division of the federal investigation and that the department was cooperating. 
It is the policy and practice of the Board of Police Commissioners in the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department to provide a work atmosphere free of actual or perceived discrimination and harassment, Maven said. I am committed to ensuring every member experiences a safe and fair work environment and every applicant receives fair treatment throughout the hiring process. A Department of Justice spokesperson could not be immediately reached for comment. In a letter obtained by the Star, Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division, said its investigation is based on information that suggests KCPD might be engaged in certain employment practices that discriminate against black officers and applicants, including those that have a disparate impact based on race in entry-level hiring, promotions, and assignments to detective, in imposing discipline, and by maintaining a hostile work environment. The news comes months after the Star published a series of stories examining allegations of racism and harassment within the police force. The newspaper found that the number of black officers was lower than it had been decades ago and that black officers were disproportionately disciplined by KCPD and at least 18 officers had left because of racist treatment over a 15-year period. The Department of Justice investigation will be conducted by the Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Missouri. It is important to note that we have not reached any conclusion about the subject matter of the investigation, Clark wrote Monday to KCPD's attorney and Attorney General Eric Schmidt. We intend to consider all relevant information and we welcome your assistance in helping to identify what that might be. One story as part of the Star's investigation told of Herb Robinson, a black detective who believes he was racially profiled by two of his colleagues. The stop was caught on dash camera in which his colleagues can be heard calling him a dumbass and a retard. I might have been taken down to the ground. I might have been shot, Robinson, who is now a sergeant and has since sued, KCPD told the Star. I might have reached in my car to get my ID to prove that he was a police officer and been shot. Another story told of Titus Golden, a black officer who fought against a policy that he believed showed clear racial discrimination. The policy required officers to be shaved during the pandemic so their masks fit. Black cops who said they need to keep a beard for medical purposes were disciplined, while white officers flouted the policy and wore beards, Golden said. It reminded me of the double standard that this department has between black and white officers, he told the Star. They were wearing their beards proudly, like there was nothing wrong. I instantly got very frustrated. After learning of the investigation, Golden on Monday said, It's a blessing to see this. If only they would listen when officers are getting treated differently, it wouldn't have to be like this, Golden said. If us black officers are getting treated bad, I can only imagine how the community is being treated. Gwen Grant, president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Kansas City, which was also among the groups requesting a probe, said she was thrilled to learn of the investigation. We are elated. We are extremely hopeful that this investigation will set us on a course for transparency, accountability, equity and justice, Grant told the Star. We hope this employment investigation will expand to include excessive and deadly use of force patterns and practices as well, she said. Laura McDonald, executive director of the Metro Organization for Racial and Economic Equity, which has called for a Department of Justice investigation, says she hopes the investigation points to the changes we know need to be made in this department.
Specifically, there's a pattern of systemic racism so perverse it even impacts black officers, she said. Citizens of this community experiencing that impact of this racism have had little recourse short of lawsuits, which we all pay for when they do get results. In a message posted to Twitter, Mayor Quentin Lucas said he was canceling a trip with the Greater Kansas City Chamber of Commerce to attend a more recently scheduled meeting of the Board of Police Commissioners relating to the search for a new police chief. I know much is occurring today with KCPD, Lucas wrote. I hope for more public discussion. That was the article. KC Police Employment Practices Probed for Racial Discrimination. It was written by Glenn E. Rice and Luke Nozika and was published in the Kansas City Star on September 20th, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour comes from the September 18th edition of the Kansas City Star. The title is Weed It Out. The subtitle is Marijuana Legalization in Missouri Could Be a Gold Mine for Some, But Others Worry They'll Miss Their Chance to Cash In. It was written by Kaysen Bayless and Kevin Hardy. Raytown business partners Andrew McDowell and Roderick Pearson Jr. have long dreamed of building a legitimate marijuana business. So after Missouri voters legalized medical marijuana in 2018, the pair explored what it would take to transform Funky Skunk, their smoke shop selling CBD products, into a dispensary providing marijuana to their community. But they balked at the endeavor after estimating it would cost at least half a million dollars to meet the state's strict licensing regulations. Now they see what could be another shot, but they have doubts. On November 8th, Missouri voters will decide whether to approve a constitutional amendment that would legalize marijuana for adults over the age of 21. If it's approved, small black-owned mom-and-pop shops like Funky Skunk will be part of the mad dash to scoop up newly created micro-licenses to sell marijuana. The Funky Skunk proprietors have reservations about the proposed changes, mainly that the state's marijuana industry will remain largely under the control of established players who have built up their businesses over the last four years. With only micro-licenses available, they fear that minority-owned businesses like theirs won't have an equal opportunity to get involved. While McDowell has campaigned against the amendment, he said he will try to get a license to sell marijuana if it passes. If Funky Skunk were to win one of the micro-licenses, the pair would be competing against operators like Nate Ruby, who won several coveted medical licenses while attending law school in 2020. A single grow room inside his illicit gardens outside of Kansas City contains 450 cannabis plants. Eclipsing the 250 plant limit the state will impose on micro-licenses, Ruby also holds five dispensary licenses, allowing his company to sell its own harvest as well as a variety of products from other growers and manufacturers across the state. It definitely helps people that are here, Ruby said. We're already here and we can flip to rec. Ruby acknowledged that it won't be easy for small timers to break into the heavily regulated industry that can require millions of dollars in capital, especially at a time when existing marijuana growers and sellers say the business is already overbuilt for the demand they're seeing from Missouri patients. It's going to be extremely difficult, Ruby said. I think the hardest thing for that program is going to be access to capital. Many opponents of the ballot measure philosophically support legalizing marijuana. 
but they say the current language tilts the scale in favor of existing operators like Ruby rather than smaller operations like Funky Skunk who are trying to break into the market. Rather than creating a wide open market, the ballot measure would allow the state to restrict licenses which critics say would effectively enshrine a monopoly market into the Missouri Constitution, giving existing industry players an unfair advantage. What could be a good constitutional amendment is turning out to be a double down on a lackluster medical program, said McDowell, the Funky Skunk co-founder. It's hard for minorities like myself to feel like we're being included, to feel like we have a fair opportunity in shake. Just like the larger businesses, micro-licensees will face financial pressures funding their operations. Marijuana businesses cannot access traditional banking because federal laws still classify marijuana as a Schedule I drug. That means businesses must raise their own funds from family and friends or seek high-interest loans from marijuana lenders. Ruby and other existing players wanted to see that addressed with zero-interest loans for micro-licenses funded by state fees, but that language didn't make it in the final ballot language. He envisioned small upstarts partnering with big operations like his to learn the business. It would have been nice to see something like that to help everyone to get up and running quickly and easily instead of trying to sit there and figure out how to raise money or structure different deals, he said. Because at the end of the day, when you win this, you just want to start growing and selling marijuana. Without a license to grow or sell medical marijuana, Funky Skunk owners McDowell and Pearson have had to carve out their own lane in the marijuana industry, constantly adapting to fill voids in the market. When they first started Funky Skunk in early 2016, they sold various smoking accessories like blunt wraps and rolling papers. The two childhood friends turned business partners thought the name was funny. A nod to the pungent smell of smoked marijuana and the Looney Tune skunk Pepe Le Pew. The business, tucked in a nondescript strip mall in Raytown, has morphed over the years into what the two men describe as a pop-and-pop community business and marijuana brand. They view Funky Skunk as a way to give back to the community they grew up in. They sell t-shirts and hoodies with their logo, a skunk with a toothy smirk. They partnered with a doctor out of St. Louis to help people schedule telehealth visits to get medical marijuana cards. They started a podcast to talk about the cannabis industry and marijuana culture. And in 2021, they opened up their business as a private member social club where people can rent out the space for weed smoking events. We've always had to go with the flow of the industry, McDowell said. That's the only way for us to survive. That's the only way. But the one thing missing from their dream of being a one-stop shop for all things marijuana? Selling actual marijuana. McDowell is torn about the November 8th ballot question that asked voters to legalize recreational marijuana. While he's waited years for full legalization, he doesn't think the constitutional amendment will give small and minority-owned businesses a fair opportunity to get a license. Last month, he joined a coalition backed by State Representative Ashley Bland Manlove, a Kansas City Democrat that, among other concerns, criticized the amendment for not offering social equity provisions for minority-owned businesses. Supporters of the amendment, however, say micro-licenses are an example of social equity because they will allow people harmed by marijuana-related arrests to break into the market. Under the amendment, existing medical marijuana businesses would have the right to convert their licenses to allow recreational sales a guaranteed spot in the lucrative marketplace.
The Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, which will oversee the program, has near total discretion to issue additional licenses, but has given no indication it would grant a large number of new licenses. That leaves new entrants like Funky Skunk to compete in a pool of new micro-licenses. The state will use a lottery system to award licenses to qualify micro-license applicants. I don't believe it's a good faith effort because we're getting what's left over, McDowell said. We're not getting first dibs. The micro-licenses are built for smaller businesses and are more restrictive than full licenses. The state will be required to issue at least 144 divided among the state's eight congressional districts. Among other criteria, those micro-licenses target lower-income individuals and those who have been previously arrested for nonviolent marijuana offenses. If a business like Funky Skunk gets a micro-license, it will be competing in an industry alongside people like Josh Mitchum. An entire wall of Mitchum's office is lined with hats, sporting names like Floor Farms, Easy Mountain, and Suede Cannabis. The hats represent the reach of Mitchum's marijuana empire. His Clover, capital C-L-O-V-R, creates dozens of manufactured marijuana products like pre-rolls, edibles, and concentrates. The Kansas City Company's products are sold across 83 Missouri dispensaries. And crucially, Clover holds exclusive licensing agreements with some of the best-known national marijuana brands in the country. That means his company is the only one that can manufacture and sell marijuana-infused Keef Soda or Wana Gummies. Mitchum is already making plans for expanding his sweeping facilities set in an industrial area south of the Missouri River. We're all going to benefit from the passage of adult use, he said. Mitchum, who chairs the Medical Marijuana Trade Industries Government Affairs Committee, is well aware of the criticisms against the ballot measure. But after an attempt to legalize marijuana in the Missouri General Assembly failed this spring, he said the ballot box could be the state's last chance. Republicans in Jefferson City are eyeing major challenges in how proposed constitutional amendments win their way onto statewide ballots, which means getting something on the constitutional ballot will become impossible, Mitchum said. Mitchum believes the proposed micro-licenses will encourage smaller players to get their foot into the industry. He views the micro-license as a way for people without years of experience or millions of dollars on hand to start small and eventually grow their businesses to compete for a traditional license. In fact, those smaller players may be able to specialize in unique marijuana strains that are difficult for big players to mass produce. Just like craft breweries experiment with ingredients and brewing techniques, smaller marijuana growers may draw customers for their unique products. There are these strains of flour that are really incredible strains, but they're also very challenging to grow, Mitchum said. A lot of times, full-size cultivators don't want to grow craft flour. Craft flour can be very finicky, but that's also why it demands top dollar. Critics view the micro-licenses as a separate and unequal category of marijuana businesses since they can't sell or buy products from larger players. But Mitchum still views those who win micro-licenses as competition with his company. Those micro-licenses, they're going to take business away from existing dispensaries and from existing manufacturers, he said. And you know, we're just prepared for that. It's just part of doing business. The cannabis pie is large enough for everyone to have a slice of it. John Payne, campaign manager for Legal Missouri 2022, 
The group which crafted the amendment said some micro license holders will eventually have the opportunity to convert their businesses into full licenses. This amendment is going to bring tens of millions of dollars in new revenue to the government of Missouri and local governments and also hundreds of millions and in fact, probably billions of dollars in the long run and new economic opportunity for workers and for business owners, he said. That opportunity could be a glimmer of hope for some small business owners, but some see a tough climb ahead. About 50 miles from downtown Kansas City in the rural city of Holden, Mike Holt sees generational wealth in his future if he wins one of the new micro licenses. If I get it and I become sick or I die or whatever, my kids can take it over and it's something they can lean on, he said. Holtz was one of the hundreds of applicants denied a license after Missouri legalized medical marijuana in 2018. He's appealing that decision while he operates a small CBD and vape store in his city of about 2,000 people. We have customers that come in that can't afford the current medical marijuana facilities, he said. They've been there once or twice, but the prices are outrageous. They're gouging people. It's a terrible program. If the amendment passes, Holtz said he hopes a micro license could transform his shop into a dispensary. He likes the amendment, but said he worries the monopoly it would create will shut out average people like himself. I think it's a great opportunity for anybody who has the drive and the willing to try it and a little bit of money to get into it, he said. I just hope that they can give the average people a chance. But Brennan England fears that small operations like Holtz will face an uphill battle. It's going to be parceled out to a very fortunate very few, said England, who is the Missouri chapter president of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. England wanted to apply for a medical license at the outset, but he was dissuaded by the state's regulations and costs. I knew that there was no way for a blue-collar black man to have an opportunity in that competitive space, he said. Instead, he founded the St. Louis Cannabis Club, a social and business club centered around marijuana. England backed legislative efforts to legalize marijuana, but he thinks the ballot language is too limiting for micro-license holders. In addition to limitations on volumes, the ballot language would keep micro-licenses separate from the overall market, and it even bars them from holding multiple licenses, licenses to grow and sell, for instance, which is permitted for existing commercial license holders. A lot of it feels like trying to pacify a really big problem with a really small solution, he said. And that doesn't sit right with me and many other people of color. But England said he still plans to apply for a license if Missourians approve the constitutional amendment. And he hopes to build his business into an incubator of sorts to help minorities get new marijuana endeavors up and running. We have to make damn sure we get the most out of it, he said. The industry is counting on the passage of the ballot initiative in November. Currently, growers and sellers say the medical marijuana market is oversupplied with too few customers to go around. Growers in particular are sitting on piles of marijuana flour just looking for customers. At Illicit Gardens, for instance, Ruby's team has actually scaled down its production and staffing as the market softened. While the building is abuzz with workers tending to plants, harvesting buds, and packaging dried flour, parts of the facility remain idled. Ruby expects to ramp back up hiring and production once the ballot initiative passes. I think there are a lot of companies that are struggling a lot right now, he said. The demand is there, but there's too much supply. In St. Joseph, Christopher McHugh says his company is just breaking even. I don't know if anyone is in the black, he said. I know I'm not. 
His company, Vertical, holds licenses to grow cannabis, manufacture infused products, and sell in retail dispensaries. But that kind of integrated model won't be available to micro-license holders who must stick to one part of the industry. Currently, the state reports nearly 200,000 active medical marijuana patients. If it wasn't for adult use on the horizon, I think there's a lot of people out there who might throw in the towel, he said, because it's not worth it. Still, he sees the micro-license as a meaningful opportunity for niche growers or those looking to make homegrown operations legitimate. Right now, there are a lot of home growers out there selling marijuana, he said. I think this micro-license is a great solution for people who are in the black market to get into the legal market. Missouri's marijuana market is still in its infancy. Many operators who want licenses never opened their doors. Others sold the coveted licenses. Mike Wilson, co-founder and chief executive of Franklin Stash House, thinks some operators overestimated the demand and weren't prepared for the ultra-competitive market. It is the most competitive industry I have ever seen, Wilson said. I think you could draw a comparison to early post-prohibition with alcohol. He said the recreational vote, if approved, will provide a major boon to Missouri businesses. Not only will it make it easier for resident adults to buy pot, but the recreational market is expected to draw customers from other states like Kansas, where marijuana is still strictly outlawed. In addition to mainstays like pre-rolls, Franklin Stash House produces marijuana-infused lemonade and will soon roll out a partnership with Kansas City's Guy Snacks. Wilson expects to offer 100 different products by the end of the year. It's one of the biggest economic booms the state is going to see in this decade, he said. McDowell, the Funky Skunk co-founder, said that in a perfect world, a micro-license could be great for his business. Customers would rather eat at a local mom-and-pop food spot than McDonald's, he said. But he worries about the limits the license would place on his business compared to the big-time players. There would be two kinds of micro-licenses under the proposal. Dispensaries, which would sell marijuana, and wholesalers, which would grow and process the plant. Those micro-licenses holders would only be able to transact with each other. It's almost as if they're trying to appease us, he said. It's like, all right, we've got all these people that say they've been disenfranchised and saying that they don't have any equity, so here's your equity bone, right? Go over there and play. You can't play with us. There are several photographs and charts that go along with this story. The first photograph shows two men standing behind a counter in a small business. One is wearing a red hat and a red t-shirt. The other is leaning on the counter with a black t-shirt and he's wearing dreadlocks. Within the shelves, you see products like rolling papers, ashtrays, bongs, and trays to roll marijuana on. The caption reads, Andrew McDowell and Roderick Pearson Jr. own and operate Funky Skunk, a retail smoke shop that sells CBD, helps patients get medical marijuana cards, and hosts marijuana smoking events in Raytown, Missouri. The next photograph shows a marijuana grow room. It is white. There are hundreds of white and green bags with yellow tags laid out on a very long white table. There's one marijuana plant growing out of each bag. The caption reads, 
Cannabis plants flourish under the grow lights at Illicit Gardens, a large cultivator of medical marijuana in the Kansas City area. The next photograph shows a woman wearing a black smock and a green hairnet in a laboratory. She has black latex gloves on her hands. In front of her is a silver machine. The caption reads, Chantel Lathrop uses a machine to dispense liquid into gummy molds during the manufacturing process at Clover, which makes marijuana-infused products in Kansas City. The next photograph shows a man in shorts and a t-shirt with his baseball cap on backwards standing underneath a room full of marijuana plants that are hanging upside down from the ceiling. The caption reads, Adam Diltz, Chief Operations Officer at Illicit Gardens, checks on the process of a batch of marijuana. The room is lit under a green glow to help prevent any stock or damage to the product during the drying process. Next, there is a chart. The title of the chart is Micro Licenses by Congressional District. This is a map of the state of Missouri. It shows Missouri's eight congressional districts. The caption reads, the amendment will require the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services to initially only issue six micro licenses per congressional district. Officials must use the old congressional district lines, not this year's redrawn boundaries. An additional six micro licenses would be issued for each district 270 days later, followed by another six after another 278 days. Eventually, at least 18 micro licenses in total would be issued per each congressional district. Missouri could issue more, but wouldn't be required to go above that number. The last chart that goes along with this story is titled Requirements for a Micro License. Applicants must meet one of several criteria to qualify for a micro license. Criteria number one, titled Arrested on Nonviolent Marijuana Charges. Applicants who have been arrested, prosecuted, or convicted of a nonviolent marijuana offense qualify unless the offense was providing marijuana to a minor or driving under the influence. Criteria number two, people who live in impoverished areas. Individuals would qualify for micro licenses if they live in a zip code of census tract where at least 30% of the population lives in poverty or where the unemployment rate is 50% higher than the state average. Criteria 3. Individuals who fall below a certain income threshold. Anyone with a net worth of less than $250,000 who has made less than 250% of the federal poverty level about $34,000 a year for a household of one in at least three of the past 10 years would qualify. Disabled veterans also qualify. And criteria number four, education. Must have graduated from an unaccredited high school or lived in a zip code containing an unaccredited school district for three of the past five years. That was a reading of the article, Weeded Out. It appeared in the September 18th edition of the Kansas City Star, and it was written by Kaysen Bayless and Kevin Hardy. Next up on today's African American Hour is an obituary from the New York Times and its nytimes.com website. The title is, Pharaoh Sanders, whose saxophone was a force of nature, dies at 81. It was written 
by John Perilas, capital P-A-R-E-L-E-S, and was published September 25, 2022. The subtitle to this obituary is, He first gained wide recognition for his work with John Coltrane. He went on to a fertile, prolific career, releasing dozens of albums as a leader. Pharaoh Sanders, a saxophonist and composer, celebrated for music that was at once spiritual and visceral, purposeful and ecstatic, died on Saturday in Los Angeles. He was 81. His death was announced in a statement by Luwaka Bop, the company for which he had made his most recent album, Promises. The statement did not specify the cause. The sound Mr. Sanders drew from his tenor saxophone was a force of nature, burly, throbbing and encompassing, steeped in deep blues and drawing on extended techniques to create shrieking harmonics and imposing multiphonics. He could sound fierce or anguished. He could also sound kindly and welcoming. He first gained wide recognition as a member of John Coltrane's groups from 1965 to 1967. He then went on to a fertile, prolific career with dozens of albums and decades of performances. Mr. Sanders played free jazz, jazz standards, upbeat Caribbean-tinged tunes, and African and Indian-rooted incantations such as The Creator Has a Master Plan, which opened his 1969 album, Karma, a pinnacle of devotional free jazz. He recorded widely as both a leader and a collaborator, working with Alice Coltrane, McCoy Tyner, Randy Weston, Joy DeFrancesco, and many others. Looking back on Mr. Sanders' career in a 1978 review, Robert Palmer of the New York Times wrote, His control of multiphonics on the tenor set standards that younger saxophonists are still trying to live up to, and his sound, huge, booming, but capable of great delicacy and restraint, was instantly recognizable. Mr. Sanders told The New Yorker in 2020, I'm always trying to make something that might sound bad sound beautiful in some way. I'm a person who just starts playing anything I want to play and make it turn out to be maybe some beautiful music. Pharaoh Sanders was born Pharaoh Sanders in Little Rock, Arkansas on October 13, 1940. His mother was a cook in a school cafeteria. His father worked for the city. He first played music in church, starting on drums and moving on to clarinet and then saxophone. Although tenor saxophone was his main instrument, he also performed and recorded frequently on soprano. He played blues, jazz, and R&B at clubs around Little Rock. During the era of segregation, he recalled in 2016, he sometimes had to perform behind a curtain. In 1959, he moved to Oakland, California, where he performed at local clubs. His fellow saxophonist John Handy suggested he move to New York City, where the free jazz movement was taking shape, and in 1962 he did. At times in his early New York years, he was homeless and lived by selling his blood. But he also found gigs in Greenwich Village, and he worked with some of the leading exponents of free jazz, including Ornette Coleman, Don Cherry, and Sun Ra. It was Sun Ra who persuaded him to change his first name to Pharaoh. And for a short time, Mr. Sanders was a member of the Sun Ra Orchestra. Capital S-U-N, capital R-A, capital A-R-K-E-S-T-R-A. Mr. Sanders made his first album as a leader, Pharaoh, for ESP Disc in 1964. John Coltrane invited him to sit in with his group, 
And in 1965, Mr. Sanders became a member, exploring elemental, tumultuous free jazz on seminal albums like Accession, Ohm, and Meditations. After Coltrane's death in 1967, Mr. Sanders went on to record with his widow, the pianist and harpist Alice Coltrane, on albums including Pata the El Daoud, capital P-T-A-H, capital E-L, capital D-A-O-U-D, and Journey in the Satchitananda, capital S-A-T-C-H-I-D-A-N-A-N-D-A, both released in 1970. Mr. Sanders had already begun recording as a leader on the Impulse Later, which had also been Coltrane's home. The titles of his albums, Taid, capital T-A-U-H-I-D, in 1967, and Karma in 1969, made clear his interest in Islamic and Buddhist thought. His music was expansive and open-ended, concentrating on immersive group interaction rather than solos and incorporating African percussion and flutes. In the liner notes to Karma, the poet, playwright, and activist Amiri Baraka wrote, Freyro has become one long song. The 32-minute The Creator Has a Master Plan moves between pastoral ease with a rolling two-chord vamp and a reassuring message sung by Leona Thomas and squalling frantic outbursts, but portions of it found FM radio airplay beyond jazz stations. During the 1970s and 80s, Mr. Sanders' music moved from album-length excursions like the kinetic 1971 Black Unity towards shorter compositions, reconnections with jazz standards, and new renditions of Coltrane compositions. He shared a Grammy Award for his work with the pianist McCoy Tyner on the 1987 album Blues for Coltrane. His recordings grew less turbulent and more contemplative. On the 1977 album Love Will Find a Way, he tried pop jazz and R&B, sharing ballads with singer Phyllis Hyman. He returned to more mainstream jazz with his albums for Teresa Records in the 1980s. But his explorations were not over. In live performances, he might still bear down on one song for an entire set and make his instrument blare and cry out. During the 1990s and early 2000s, he made albums with the innovative producer Bill Laswell. He reunited with the blistering electric guitarist Sonny Sharrock, capital S-H-A-R-R-O-C-K, who had been a Sanders sideman on the 1991 album Ask the Ages, and he collaborated with the Moroccan Nawa, capital G-N-A-W-A, musician Malim Mahmoud Ghania on the Trance of Seven Colors in 1994. Information on Mr. Sanders' survivors was not immediately available. Mr. Sanders had difficult relationships with record labels and he spent nearly two decades without recording as a leader. Yet he continued to perform in his occasional recorded appearances, including his wraith-like presence on Promises, his 2021 collaboration with the London Symphony Orchestra, and Sam Shepard, the electronic musician known as Floating Points, were widely applauded. Reviewing Promises for the Times, Giovanni Russinello noted that Mr. Sanders' glistening and peaceful sound was deployed mindfully throughout the album, adding, He shows little of the throttling power that used to come bursting so naturally from his horn, but every note seems carefully selected, not only to state his own cause, but to funnel the soundscape around him into a precise single note line. 
In 2016, Mr. Sanders was named a Jazz Master, the highest honor for a jazz musician in the United States by the National Endowment for the Arts. In a video made in recognition of his award, the saxophonist Kamisi Washington said, It's like taking fried chicken and gravy to space and having a picnic on the moon listening to Pharaoh. The saxophonist Lakeisha Benjamin said, It's like he's playing pure light at you. It's way beyond the language. It's way beyond the emotion. Next on today's African American Hour is a book review from Audiophile Magazine and its audiophilemagazine.com website. The title of the book is Black Market, An Insider's Journey into the High-Stakes World of College Basketball. The book was written by Merle Code, capital C-O-D-E. The book is narrated by James Shippey. It falls into the category of contemporary culture and should take about 8.25 hours to listen to. The author is a former college basketball player who, as a recruiter of player representatives for Nike, saw firsthand how colleges exploited young athletes, often manipulating them to become part of the money-making machines that college sports have become. Narrator James Shippey's masculine voice and big city vocal personality work well to convey Merle Code's intelligent perspectives as well as his moral rectitude. As a shoe company marketing executive, the author says he often funneled money to student athletes under the table in no small part to redress their having been used and manipulated by college athletic departments without compensation beyond their scholarships. With his pitch-perfect phrasing and palpable empathy for the author's moral journey, Shippey's performance infuses Code's finely honed observations with pathos and dignity. That was a review of the book, Black Market, An Insider's Journey into the High-Stakes World of College Basketball. It appeared at the audiophilemagazine.com website. The book was written by Merle Code and was read by James Shippey. The final reading for today is from the Associated Press. It's titled, In Her Own Words, Justice Jackson Speaks Volumes from the Bench. It was written by Jessica Gresco and was published October 8th, 2022. Katanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman on the Supreme Court and its newest justice, said before the term began that she was ready to work. She made that clear during arguments in the opening cases. The tally, 4,568 words spoken over nearly six hours this past week, about 50% more than any of the eight other justices, according to Adam Feldman, the creator of the Empirical SCOTUS blog. The justices as a whole are generally a talkative bunch, questioning lawyers in rapid succession. For now, Jackson's approach seems less like Justice Clarence Thomas, who once went 10 years without asking a question, and more like Justice Neil Gorsuch, who in his first year was one of the more active questioners. On Tuesday, in a case that could weaken the landmark Voting Rights Act, which sought to bar racial discrimination in voting, Jackson was particularly vocal. At one point, she spoke uninterrupted for more than three and a half minutes to lay out her understanding of the history of the post-Civil War 14th Amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing formerly enslaved people equal rights. Jackson's statement ran three transcript pages, the longest Feldman could remember ever seeing. 
I can't think of a time where you've seen a junior justice take hold of the arguments to the same extent, Feldman said, using the court's shorthand title for the newest justice. A jurist with a liberal record, Jackson joined a court where conservatives hold a 6-3 advantage. So in many of the most contentious cases, her vote likely does not matter to the outcome. But her performance during arguments seemed to show she intends to make herself heard. I have a seat at the table now, and I'm ready to work, she said last week at an appearance at the Library of Congress following her ceremonial investiture at the high court. In three of the four cases the court heard this past week, she was the most active speaker among the justices. Feldman said new justices usually sit back and take things in, but poke their heads up occasionally to ask a question. This was a different approach, he said. Monday was the court's opening day and Jackson's first on the Supreme Court bench. The justices were about five minutes into their questioning in what turned out to be a nearly two-hour argument in a dispute over the nation's main anti-water pollution law when Jackson asked her first question. She was the fourth justice to do so. By the end of arguments, she had probed the meaning of the word adjacent, asked whether a marsh in a 1985 case was visibly indistinguishable from the abutting creek, and prefaced another question by saying, let me try to bring some enlightenment to it by asking it this way. Jackson was confirmed in April, but did not take her seat until the court began its summer recess in June, giving her months to study cases the court had granted. Other justices spent some of that time finalizing opinions in cases that included decisions overturning the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion rights case and expanding gun rights. Speaking at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in early April, days before Jackson was confirmed, Justice Amy Coney Barrett noted, fortunately, there will be some lead time for the new justice to ease into her role. That was the article, Justice Jackson Speaks Volumes from Bench. It was written by Jessica Gresco and was published at the AP.com website on October 8, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour this week. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.